0: came out with
1: sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper.
0: Radio waves, radio Radio waves,
2: radio waves, radio waves, she sees
1: radio waves, she sees radio waves.
0: Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Thursday, the 21st of February. 2020. Each fortnight we speak with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science, or particle physics. We're starting each episode with a community service announcement. You will have heard of the devastating bushfires in Australia. Climate change is real and accelerating, and we need to keep coal in the ground and urgently transition to renewable energy sources. See what you can do to influence your local politicians to develop planet-saving policies. And today's feature interview is with Carly Alinton Noon, who has just completed her master's degree in radio astronomy looking at gas accretion into the Milky Way. And Carly is also the Indigenous Heritage Officer with the Federal Department of Environment and Energy in Canberra, Australia. We talk with her just prior to her choosing her topic for her PhD. Carly is fabulous. Following that, we cross over to Adelaide to speak with Dr. Ian Astroblog-Musgrave, and he previews the excellent observing opportunities for us over the next two weeks in the morning and evening skies, and he gives us the latest news on Betelgeuse and its suite of variability rhythms. Then, as usual. I'll give you a brief news roundup. So right now, we're going to cross up to Canberra in the Australian Capital Territory to speak with Carly. Enjoy. Hello, Carly. Hi, Brendan. How are you? Very well, thanks. Today, I'm very pleased to welcome Carly Alinton Noon, who has just completed her master's degree in radio astronomy looking at gas accretion into the Milky Way. She is a Gamilaroi astrophysicist, animal lover, greenie and gamer girl with a rich background in science communication, including a stint working with the CSIRO and Carly is the first indigenous student on the East Coast to obtain a double degree in maths and science and also the first Aboriginal person to graduate with a Master's of Astronomy and Astrophysics Advanced Degree from the Australian National University. Congratulations, Carly, and thanks for speaking with us.
2: Yeah, thank you very much for having me.
0: Excellent. So before we look at your Master's research in detail, can you tell us where you grew up, please, Carly, and were dark skies a part of your childhood and What started your journey into the world of maths and science?
2: Big question to start off. (laughs) I grew up in a place called Tamworth, New South Wales. It's a regional town, kind of northwest New South Wales, about six hours north of Sydney. It's known as the country music capital of Australia. As I was growing up, it had a population around 30 to 40,000 and I think it's grown to about 50 or 60,000 today. I grew up in a little suburb of that town called Coldow. It was an area that had quite a high Indigenous population. I lived there for 17 years in the same house, in the same street and me and my family had very close connections to our neighbours and and the community in general in Koldell. I went to the school just down the road from there, a few blocks away from my house. And, you know, it was the school that my mum went to, the school that my sister went to. When I think about my childhood and the skies that I was exposed to in my childhood, it's been very different to the skies I've been exposed to in my adulthood. And I kind of lived on the outskirts of town anyway. So we had these beautiful, pristine skies. There was not a great deal of light pollution. Looking up at the sky was, was a, a big thing for me. As a kid, I never really took it much more further than that. You know, I didn't take it much more seriously than, you know, just looking at this beautiful, this beautiful view that we have, this beautiful vista. And it wasn't until I got a little bit older that I started thinking more about understanding the sky and, you know, how that connects to me, both intellectually, you know, understanding what's happening in the physical processes of the sky. But it was also becoming quite clear that I had a very strong cultural connection to the sky as well through song lines and a lot of the stories from my mob. Um, the Gamilari Nation. And so I guess, yeah, as I started getting a little bit older, it started to become more of an interest for me, Um, more than, you know, just looking up at it. I started to want to know more about the science of it and how it worked.
0: Very good. And you started off doing some work on maths puzzles as a young person.
2: Yeah, yeah. Maths was a really big part of my childhood. I didn't really like school a great deal, like lots of other kids, I guess. But it kind of meant I wasn't attending very well. But I was able to engage with maths outside of school. This was a huge learning opportunity for me because I wasn't getting the same learnings that the other students were getting. But I was still able to keep up with maths. And the way I was able to do that is we had a a family friend And she was a Gamilari woman herself. She was one of the only few people that I knew who had actually gone to uni. And she would come over and teach me maths. We would play maths games. And I think what had the biggest impact on me was the fact that she was able to make it fun. And she was able to make it interesting. And it became a lot less scary. I started getting excited about the challenge that maths brought with it. And so it was a shift in my thinking and, and a huge part of why I'm here today.
0: Fantastic. And what about early ambitions, and how have those ambitions evolved?
2: I, I had quite high ambitions when I was a, a kid and throughout growing up as well. My very first memory of, you know, thinking about what I wanted to be when I grew up I was very young, I may have been around seven, and I wanted to be a tree when I grew up. Um, I don't know where I got that from um, or if I understood that I couldn't physically be a tree. <laughs> but, yeah, that was, that was always my, my goal as a kid. And then as I got a little bit older, it turned into I wanted to be a lawyer at one point. I wanted to be a, a not just a lawyer, I wanted to be a Queen's Counsel. Which is like top T barrister. I'm not really sure what drew me to that. Yeah. I think I really liked arguing when I was a kid, as lots of kids <laughs> enjoy. So I thought, you know, maybe this, will be, this is for me. Maybe a career in arguing would be a good pathway. But then as I got older, you know, I kind of thought, oh, that, that's not really for me. And then it turned into goals of being a wrestler. I was dead set when I was about 15 or 16. I had this dream of moving to Kentucky in America and going to this wrestling school and, yeah, training to become a wrestler. And I think what drew me to that career was how extra it was. It was, you know, out of this world, you know, you were able to put on this persona and, you know, these incredibly skilled athletes. And, and the determination and, and discipline it required to kind of get to that physical state, but also to have fun with it, you know, to go out in front of audiences and, you know, be this really almost like a caricature of yourself, this really, you know, over the top version of yourself. And, you know, it was really glamorous and um, there was acting involved in it, which I was really into as a kid. So, you know, it just had all these different components to it that I really found value in but then one day I was I was wrestling I was putting it into practice I was wrestling with my dad and my brother and I ended up fracturing one of my toes and I realized that being a wrestler is really really hard (laughs) really tough on the body and maybe it wasn't for me (laughs) so um, yeah I, I did eventually let go of that dream and then it wasn't until I, I really got to uni that I kind of discovered I could do maths for the rest of my life. You know, I could, I could do science for the rest of my life.
0: Fantastic. You have ended up with some fabulous audiences, perhaps not wrestling audiences. So <laughs> <laughs> um,
2: Absolutely.
0: <laughs> now, that double degree in maths and science, tell us a little about that work.
2: It started off with just the science degree and looking at physics. And, and I found physics through philosophy, actually. I was doing this philosophy course that was looking at the universe as a whole. And it explored different theories of creation, so different creation theories. It explored different scientific theories about you know how the universe came to be. We looked in depth at Um, The concept of the multiverse so this idea that there's multiple universes and that's really what got me intrigued in physics it was pretty much my first exposure to physics and you know I wrote this amazing essay on the multiverse and you know black holes and and a lot of work that Stephen Hawking put a lot of time into I really enjoy doing that I love this so much I may as well try it. Like I may as well give it a go. And so I jumped into a science degree, majoring in physics. And at that point, it was very obvious that maths was a huge component of that. And that was something that really drew me to it as well. You know, when we think about careers involving maths, <laughs> it, it seemed it's a bit vague. It's a bit <laughs> it's a bit hard to understand where you kind of fit into society with a maths degree. And so I felt like the physics and the mass together could really, you know, give me opportunities in, in the future. If, you know, the maths wasn't quite something that society needed or, you know, something that I couldn't get a job from, I felt fairly confident that I could maybe get one from physics or the combination of the two. And it, it was a way for me, I guess, to do something that I really enjoyed. At the start of the degree, I had a very weak background in, you know, advanced physics. I had never done a physics class in my life. And so I spent about two months prior the first semester trying to teach myself year 11 and year 12 advanced physics and advanced maths. Wow. And, you know, that went as well as it could. It was a really good time because it required a lot of discipline to spend your holidays doing something like that. Yep. It did set me up to go into uni. I didn't get the strongest marks in my first year, but I think it really taught me how to be resilient. It really taught me that at the end of the day, the marks, the marks are good. Um, you know it's useful to have good marks, but it's not it's not everything. you know there there are so many other aspects of this learning process that are valuable. And so going into it with that approach, um, I wasn't too disheartened by the low marks or, you know, the struggle. And it just kind of made me want to do more and to learn more and to get better. And so I guess by the end of those two degrees, I was doing amazing. You know, I was getting high distinctions. I was working really closely with the lecturers and with, you know, my peers, the other people in the class, doing research projects you know, just really embracing it. And and I think it was that that first kind of struggle that I had, you know, going into a degree with no background, let alone, you know, a physics and maths degree, which are inherently quite difficult. You know, going through that struggle really taught me how to deal with such a difficult topic and um, how to be okay with, with struggling, I guess, with with doing hard work. So, yeah, it it was definitely a big reward at the end when not only did I get degrees, but I was doing really well.
0: Ah, That would be inspiring for so many people, Carly, including myself. Now, (laughs) Now, that move, once you had that double degree under your belt, that move from Newcastle to Canberra's Australian National University to do your master's degree, how did that come about?
2: really weird, non-linear, non-obvious way Um, like the rest of my life really. (laughs) So I, I had finished my degrees in 2016 and I started working for the CSIRO doing work in Indigenous education. So I was a program manager and a research assistant and looking at different programs and their effectiveness of um, encouraging Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids to get into STEM, uh, so science, technology, engineering and maths. And so I was doing that for, for a bit and I had quite a good background in program management and science engagement programs. And so, you know, it was just a really good fit. And I had quite a bit of experience in Indigenous education as well at that point. But Generally, when, I, when I'm when I doing science engagement or, you know, managing programs or being a part of science engagement programs, I always had an aspect of my life that was dedicated to actually doing science, you know, um, to completing my degrees or, you know, solving problems, whatever it is. Yep. But when I had finished my degrees, you know, I no longer had that aspect of my life. I was no longer using the tools that, you know, I just spent, five years learning and I was really struggling with this you know I had such a strong desire to just solve a math problem (laughs) this was just not going away it was a problem that was coming up every day you know I was thinking about this and you know I just kind of realized okay I need to go back to uni I need to do more I need to get more degrees and that's what kind of told me you know maybe postgrad is for me maybe research is yep a pathway that would, would suit me. And you know, I was telling a few people, you know, I'm thinking about going back to uni. My dad found it very confusing that, you know, I was doing wonderful. I was in this this awesome full-time job. Um, you know, I was earning great money, but that I wanted to leave it all. Yeah. <laughs> so he very much struggled with that.
0: <laughs> yep. yep. Understand that with my kids.
2: Yeah. <laughs> And, you know, I knew that it was going to take a lot of sacrifice, but it was, you know, I ha- I've, I didn't come from, from a very privileged background. Um, I wasn't used to having, you know, a decent income. I was very used to living on a very low income. And so that wasn't really an issue for me. Like, I was happy to give that up. Yep and you know I was just talking to some people I was talking to Newcastle University because that's where I did my my initial degrees from I love Newcastle as a place to to live and to be you know my friends were there I was very close to my family so it just kind of seemed like you know any the easy the easy option I guess you know I was already there and I already had my networks there but then I mentioned it to a mentor of mine who is also a good man He's a professor in IT, and he's currently based at University of Canberra. And he <laughs> he was so excited when I told him I wanted to do postgrad, yep. and so excited when I told him I wanted to do astronomy as well. And he immediately said to me, "Oh, you need to go to ANU." And I was like, "Oh, why? Like, I don't want to move. That's scary." <laughs> and <laughs> he, um, you know, he was just so insisting that I, I talked to the uni, you know, I approached them, you know, just check it out, see what it's like, give it a go. And I reluctantly agreed. And, you know, I met Brian Schmidt, who is the vice-chancellor at uh, ANU. He also has a Nobel Prize yep. for his work looking at the expansion of the universe. And, you know, that was pretty cool. So... You know, I met with everyone and I just really liked it. You know, it was just a really nice place to, to be. Everyone was very welcoming. There was a huge amount of diversity um, within the astronomy department as well. You know, there was a lot more women that I was used to. And and I think I think the biggest thing that got me was, was the high quality um, of the work that's expected from you. And so I made the leap and moved down here and I started the advanced master's degree and was matched up with an incredible supervisor Naomi McClell Griffiths she's you know I call her the queen of the Milky Way she is just so knowledgeable and just really you know really gets it really (laughs) is able to put her her feet in the shoes of the Milky Way and (laughs) understand how it's working so and you know obviously very inspirational as well to have such such an amazing supervisor so yeah it was it was definitely a leap you know having to have that much faith in myself in my own ability to have faith that you know I could kind of cope with the the standard the high standard of learning and that you know I could deal with not being in my family and you know go to this really different world to what I was used to but yeah definitely in the end it it paid off.
0: Fantastic. ANU has a a huge reputation for lots of reasons. Now let's put our science hats on now. Your research for your masters was into gas accretion into the Milky Way. What did you discover in that research?
2: Yeah, so I guess just to give you a bit of background as to what I actually did in that research, I was looking at a new method proposed by Fabian Harsh from North Carolina. Him and the co-authors put out this paper that attempted to determine the distances to neutral hydrogen clouds that live kind of just outside the Milky Way. So they live within the halo of the Milky Way. And these dense clouds, they're called high-velocity clouds. And they're called that because they are moving at velocities that do not match the velocities of the, the galaxy or the velocities of the halo of the galaxy. They travel at abnormal speeds and they travel in directions that cannot be explained by the motions of the galaxy itself. We actually don't know a great deal about them, mostly because we can't determine their distances. So I mentioned earlier um, that they're made out of neutral hydrogen, and so we measure them using radio telescopes, which you know gives us a great deal of information. It tells us, um, you know, it gives us velocity information. It also, you know, we can have get an idea of the density of the matter. But sadly, we can't get distance information from, you know, just just using radio telescopes at this point of time anyway. And so this method was, was a way to try and determine the distance based off a few different angles and a few different assumptions that we put on the cloud. So, you know, one of those angles, an example, one of those angles is um, how the cloud looks on the sky. So when we observe it, um, and you know, when I say cloud, I I mean like a very much a commentary shape. Yep. So it has kind of like a circular head, and then a more diffuse tail coming off that head, and that's due to the interaction between the cloud and the medium. So the the warm hot halo that it's traveling in, and so if we can measure that angle um, on the sky, and We can then use that angle to determine, you know, try and determine its distance. And so the way we went about this was first, obviously, to um, set up the model, implement the model, how it was initially implemented, which (laughs) sounds quite trivial, but (laughs) took a a very long time. (laughs) which I think is common with a lot of a lot of projects. Yep. And there were a few discrepancies between what we were getting and what was published in the original paper, and we quickly determined that there were some errors. Um, and so because of that, we weren't able to do, I guess, a direct comparison between their results and our results. And so we really had to kind of go from scratch. We had the the basic idea of the model, but we had to kind of – weed out the errors and so there were a few steps involved in that you know a lot of thinking about how we process our data um you know how we, when do we mask it when do we not mask it yeah lots of thinking about the images and the observations themselves and so then that developed into testing the model once we did get it implemented And we tested it on a very well-known cloud called the Smith Cloud. Yep. It's very well known mostly because of its size. It has a huge angular extent. It's about 15 degrees on the sky. And, you know, it has multiple components to it, a very dense head and a very diffuse long tail. And because it is so large, we can determine quite a lot of the kinematics about the cloud. And there's published results of its distance. And there are multiple methods that were used to determine the distance to this cloud. One of the main ones was put out there by Lockman, John Lockman. And basically, what they did is they looked at the surrounding gas of the cloud and they were able to isolate portions of the gas surrounding the cloud that were being affected by the velocity of the cloud. But other than that, the only other velocity the gas had was due to the circular rotation of the galaxy. And so they were able to use that influence to determine um, how far away it was. So this was our test subject. This is one of the very few high-velocity clouds that has a distance constraint. There's about 2,000 Of these clouds catalogued, and we have distances to maybe about a dozen (laughs) of them. There's not a lot of distance information out there. And so, this was our test subject. Um, You know, we were able to develop the model such that, um, you know, it was giving us reasonable results for the Smith cloud. It's not the best test subject because it is so large. There's basically a, a velocity disparity between the different components of the cloud. So whilst it wasn't the best test subject, it was also one of the very few clouds that actually had a distance. So we were quite limited in that respect. But regardless, we then used that model. We were able to, you know, reproduce the distance of the Smith cloud. And then we applied the model onto a region of the sky that looks at the leading arm. Now, the leading arm is this part of this huge system called the Magellanic system, and it includes both the large and small Magellanic cloud, the bridge between those two galaxies, and the stream that's following those two galaxies. And basically this whole system lives within the halo. It appears to be travelling into the disk, Some people believe that it's already gone through the disk once or maybe even twice and that it's spiraling down into closer and closer to the galactic disk from the halo. Now, this whole system is led by this object we call the leading arm and it comprises four different parts and they historically were believed to be tidal interactions coming from either the large Magellanic Cloud or the small Magellanic Cloud, and were, yeah, I guess, interactions between those galaxies and the galactic disk. Now there's a little bit, I guess, confusion about that. People aren't really sure if that object, the leading arm object or system, could develop that way, considering how hot the halo is. It's a very hot, warm environment. And if it has gone through the disk, there's questions about its survival, even in the scenario where it has a halo around itself. You know, if the the Magellanic system had a a dark matter halo around it, you know, it's predicted that that generates some level of protection to the matter inside of, of the system. But even in the scenario where there is a dark matter halo, it does not look like the leading arm would survive the travel that we think it's done. And so it's a very, very mysterious, you know, part of our sky. The kinematics are very complex. But what that gives us is a huge amount of high-velocity clouds. You know, we have all these little dense spots of clouds all within the region. And we have some idea of where this system is, you know, how far away it is. And it's quite varied. You know, some people see it at have determined that it's about 5 kiloparsecs away from us. Some studies have found that it's more like 40 kiloparsecs away from us. But it it gives us a range anyway. And so we applied the model onto a bunch of clouds within this region of the sky, and our results basically matched previous results. That, you know, a number of these clouds are between, we found that they were between about 5 to 30 kiloparsecs away. What we're also able to do with this model is we're able to reconstruct the direction of motion to these clouds. So because we don't, if we don't have the distance, it's you know, we can we can visually see where it looks like they're going based off the direction of the tail, but we don't really have anything concrete that confirms it. So using the distances that we calculate, we can, I guess, impose a direction on the cloud and and kind of see where they're travelling. You know, is it travelling towards the disk? Is it travelling away? And I guess the ultimate goal for for this information and gaining this information, you know, how far away they are, where they're travelling, you know, asking whether they're travelling towards the disk or not, is because these clouds are believed to contribute significantly to the gas reservoir of the galaxy, which ultimately gets turned into stars. Yep. And so there's this really big question at the moment about where is the galaxy getting all this gas from? You know, we can see that it's producing stars at a particular rate, one or two solar masses per year, but it just doesn't have the amount of gas to do that. We don't know where this gas is coming from in order for it to have such a high star formation rate. And so a piece of that puzzle could be that it's getting quite a lot of gas injected through these high-velocity clouds. But because we don't actually know where they're travelling to, we don't know where they're travelling from, you know, that's not trivial. And so my work is contributing to trying to understand where they're going, you know, are these clouds, how much contribution do these clouds have to the star formation rate of the galaxy? So yeah, that's the results that we obtained. We got distances to about 12 new high velocity clouds, basically doubling the (laughs) amount of distance values that we have for clouds that are, you know, already out there, high velocity clouds were discovered in the sixties. So, you know, it's about a 60 year old problem. So yeah, it's been a significant step, I guess, in this field. And yeah, it has lots of places it can go in into the future as
0: well. Sensational. My propeller hat is spinning now uncontrollably. <laughs> and that's a perfect example of doing some research, getting some data, understanding it, and that raising many, many, many more questions. It's a, a great example of how yeah. science works. That's fantastic, Carly, now. Your education, you've mentioned, just keeps on happening. What's your next direction? You've got your master's under your belt. Are you going to conduct some more studies into astrophysics?
2: Yeah, so that's definitely the dream. Um, I guess the whole point of doing the master's was so that I could get into a PhD program. And so I'm looking to start my PhD in the middle of this year. Awesome. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm taking a little bit of a break, a six month break between masters and PhD just to get me, you know, really pumped up. (laughs) Even, you know, I'm two months in and I just honestly cannot wait to get started. So, yeah, that's that's what the future looks like.
0: Fantastic. Have you got an idea of what topics you might look at?
2: I do. Um, as of this week, actually, <laughs> um, I sat down with my supervisor, the same supervisor I had for my master's degree, purely because I just really enjoy the world of radio. I really enjoy looking at the Milky Way. It's something that I've I've grown to be quite comfortable with and quite excited about as well. So why change when <laughs> it's not broken? I guess. And so again, I will be looking at the Milky Way, but probably from a a very different lens. So I don't think I'll be looking at accretion, maybe looking at the rotation measures of the galactic disks. I have a few months to decide. So (laughs) I'm going to read a lot of papers and see what makes me excited.
0: Fantastic. Watch this space. Now, The feedback I've seen on your work has been sensational. And you're seen as an ambassador who is paving the way for others, especially in our Indigenous communities. And so let's talk a little bit now about your work with Indigenous astronomy. And there are rich and accurate oral histories that go back tens of thousands of years. Perhaps you might want to connect us with one aspect of Aboriginal cosmology that you cover in your many recent talks and presentations you do at conferences and public events about Aboriginal cosmology. Sure. You know, as I
2: was getting a bit older, I realised how culturally significant astronomy is for me as a contemporary woman and for my community. And that's been strengthened in the past few years. So yeah, you mentioned I do a lot of work in this space. My main goal is really to increase how many people are accessing science, not necessarily just astronomy. You know, I'm I dig astronomy, I think it's fantastic, but you know, it's not for everyone. But I guess my my ultimate goal is just to encourage. More, more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and also more women and young girls too, getting to get into science and in that you know anyone can be a scientist you don't you don't have to fit one particular stereotype, which has sadly been the rhetoric that has been repeated for quite a few years now. Yeah. So yeah, working really hard to to change how people view who a scientist is or who can be a scientist. And one of the ways that I do that is I I really promote different knowledge systems and different approaches to science. So, you know, as it's commonly known, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were incredible observers and combined with the fact that they are the oldest civilization in the world, there are communities that go back 60 plus thousand years but even you know communities going back 30,000 years you know it's, it's a huge amount of time it's a huge amount of data as well and so it really is not surprising that Indigenous culture has this thread of scientific knowledge embedded throughout it you know, especially considering that they, they lived off the land and they they were custodians of the land. So, you know, they were taking care of it and and managing it and manicuring it. Yeah. And, yeah, manipulating it in a way that was sustainable but also um, enabled them to, to live off the land. So, you know, there are all these little... <laughs> scientific observations and and theories embedded throughout many of the Dreamtime stories or the songlines that we have. One story that I'm particularly fond of comes from the mob in South Australia. It's a community of, of women who they're, they're not really into men, <laughs> not really about that life. They're more about the single life. You know, these really strong women who you know? They do all their hunting. They do all the gathering, and it's just their culture not to marry and not to have kids. And there's this this person, this hunter, around at the time. And this hunter, Naruna, he, you know, he's he's the most beloved hunter. You know, he everyone loves him. He's the most achieved. He can get anything he wants, basically, yep. and. You know, he kind of makes it his goal to get one of these women. And, of course, because he can't have them, so he he must chase them. And he's chasing them and he's chasing them so much that they run up into the sky and he chases them up there. He follows them up there. And, you know, they get up into the sky and they're still chasing and they're still chasing. And eventually one of the, the women... She just gets sick of it. She's just over it and she stands up for herself and for her sisters as well. And the hunter, Nairuna, he really doesn't like this. And he responds by shooting fire magic at them and at the the older sister, Kambagda. And, you know, Kambagda is equally as powerful and equally as magic, um, has equal magic as him. And so he's she's... Ag- actually able to extinguish his fire magic with her fire magic. And this battle goes on for, you know, forever really, until eventually one of the dingoes that were there to protect the sisters, the, the group of women, um, ends up attacking the hunter. And so, you know, this is cool story. It's very dramatic, um, has, has a lot going on. But the thing that I really appreciate about it is when it talks about the fire magic aspects, it's referencing particular stars. So if you haven't picked up by now, this is a story about Pleiades and Orion. And it's a very similar story to what's found around the world. You know, the Greek mythology about Orion is very similar as well. You know, they're a hunter um, and Pleiades is attributed to females generally. And so when we talk about the fire magic within this story, the fire magic for the hunter, Naruna, is the star Beetlejuice. And the fire magic for the sisters and Kabagda, that's Alderbaran. And these two stars, they're very special stars because they're variable stars. And so that means, you know, Beetlejuice has been in the media lately and lots of people are excited about it and... What I'm excited about is the fact that, you know, it varies. So it, it goes through this cycle of being brighter than normal and then it dims for a period of time. And Haldobarren is exactly the same. And so there's this thread, I guess, or this observation um, embedded within this story through the fire magic being shot out and then extinguished. And I guess, you know, when, when you understand oral cultures a little bit more and understand the techniques that they use in order to remember information, you know, we have to, we have to remember that the, this is not a written culture. You know, these people's survival was solely dependent on their memory and their ability to remember these stories. Yep. And so often these stories are quite dramatic, Um, and how the knowledge is embedded into it is not straightforward, you know, it's not as obvious as just stating facts. It's, It's a story because that's, you know, it's easier to remember. I find it super interesting the fact that this is a story that is common among many different societies and throughout time and throughout space.
0: And opens lots of doors. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. That's awesome. Now, fantastic journey. You're embarking on a PhD, but what are you keeping your eye on in terms of research?
2: Um, I find the research into, you know, the epoch of reunification really interesting. You know, these are people looking back at the first light of the universe, you know, milliseconds after the Big Bang. And, you know, there's a lot of work happening at the moment with all these new observatories popping up, so MWA being being a really significant player in this. Oh, yes. And I think it, for me it's a combination of the science. It's such incredible science. It's so interesting. It's something that everyone you know, has opinions of or, you know, has, has at least questioned once in their life, you know, whether you're a scientist or not. You, you, think, you think about these things, right? As a human, you think about how did we get here? How, how, how did the universe start? And so I think, yeah, epoch realisation work is, is just incredibly interesting and really speaks to that human endeavour. It's relatable and it's, it's understandable and it's, it's meaningful to a lot of different people.
0: Thank you for the science then. Now, the microphone is all yours now, Carly. Now you've got the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about one of the challenges that we face in science or science denialism or career paths or diversity and equity or in our quest for new knowledge. The microphone's all yours.
2: Oh wow, that's very generous. Thank you. I think one of the the main things that I've been struggling with lately, and it's very much influenced from my background, but the way in which we approach science, it's it's very cellular, it's very disconnected, and compartmentalized. And and this is this has been one of the main things as to you know how we've been able to discover so many things and how we able to understand so many complex systems is from our approach and be able to, you know, peel it away from its context and just look at one, one thing in particular, yep. which, you know, it's a great thing and it's led to, to, to huge amounts of um, innovation and, and progress, but I think it's been at a cost and that cost is not valuing the connections between things. Yep. We we value things um, isolated and and the knowledge that that can give us, but who's to say that the connections that that isolated thing has to the world around it cannot also lead to, you know, innovation and progress and, and deeper understanding. And so I think we've lost a lot of information and you know ability to to innovate because we we have not been considering these threads. I personally think these threads are hugely important for our for our environment, for where we find ourselves. You know, we we know as people how complex our world is, how complex the systems are. And I think by leaving those threads behind we're doing a disservice to science. I think there's a lot more that we could be getting out if we just consider how things connect to to their environment and we value that that information.
0: That's a fantastic way of looking at it. Hopefully we'll get there over time. Thank you so much, Indigenous inspiration, Master's graduate and soon-to-be PhD candidate, Carly O'Linton Noon. On behalf of our listeners, it's been really fabulous speaking with you. Thank you so much for your time. And we'll encourage listeners to follow your adventures and your fabulous journey. Carly is at Carly underscore moon underscore on Twitter. So make sure you follow her. Thank you, Carly. Farewell for now.
2: Thank you, Brendan. Thank you, Astrophys. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Take care.
0: i will see you in two weeks. (whistles) Hello, Ian.
1: Hello, Brendan, and how are you on this beautiful summer evening?
0: Well, it's fantastic here in northeast Victoria, Ian. It's a beautiful evening.
1: It's a beautiful evening here. It's been so cloudy for the past few days that all the attempts at astronomical observation have been completely uh, disrupted. So hopefully uh, after we have our chat, I'll be able to, go to get out and have another view of Beetlejuice.
0: Very good. Well, look, Ian, we've been talking about Beetlejuice for a while and it still hasn't popped. It still hasn't popped. And seriously, we're
1: not expecting, expecting it to go supernova. <laughs> um, on the other hand, uh, our listeners will recall uh, last time we talked, I spoke about the the most prominent theory, which is that it's a combination of three different variability cycles coinciding. Uh, as you remember from that talk, uh, Betelgeuse is a variable star which has a, a dominant period of around about 460 days and minor periods of... of a much shorter length in a longer period of around about six years. And the idea is that, uh, so it brightens and dims, not very much according to these particular cycles. People have been doing simulations and calculations and Beetlejuice will begin to brighten on the 21st of this, uh, of this month, plus minus seven days of course. So if it is the three cycles coinciding, that we should expect to see it start brightening sometime around about the 21st. Now, this podcast will go out around about the 21st. Yep. But even if it has started brightening right on dot, we still need lots of observations. From my own observations, it looks like uh, Beetlejuice has been around about uh, magnitude 1.75 for some time. And we think it's roughly bottomed out. Uh, that's a general consensus amongst the Australian observers. Now, if it's going to start uh, brightening, it's very important to keep a a good eye on it.
0: Well, no, in two weeks' time, one way or another, probably.
1: Possibly, yes. But the the images from the ESO have been really dramatic. um, Yes. Images that people just taken um, uh, at the beginning of 2019 show a uh, uh, fairly obvious disc which while not uniform in brightness is certain activity. we know Betelgeuse have a more or less bright spot in its atmosphere uh, but it's obviously uh, relatively uniform with an overall bright spot but if you look at the image that they took in uh, December of 2019 we were beginning to notice the dimming you can see that it's very definitely changed it's a lot dimmer and, the, and the, there are single bright spot right off on one edge. It's, it's really quite a dramatic image. showing that Beetlejuice has changed somewhat dramatically. And also this goes in with what I talked about last week about the changes in overall colour temperature. So Beetlejuice is a lot redder, it's a lot cooler. So we're putting all this information together they may have a better idea of what the dynamics may be. We may be seeing, um, as I said before, one of the things uh, we may be seeing is what churn and some surface material being pulled, uh, pulled up from uh, deeper in the layers of uh, of, of being gases. So uh, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens when we have a, a closer look at uh, what's going on.
0: Very good. Well, watch this space, Ian. And can you tell us, Ian? What's up in the sky for the next two weeks?
1: Well, what's up in the sky for the next two weeks? Obviously, beagle juice. I encourage <laughs> everyone who has a clear sky to go out uh, shortly after uh, full dark, and uh, that's 90 minutes after sunset, and have a very good look at beagle juice. And on my uh, website, I'll give you instructions on how to make the ride this. You may need a couple of goes at this to get a good feel for it. But for the next two weeks or so, until our next broadcast, I would suggest everyone goes out, you know, roughly uh, every night and have a uh, good look at Beagle Juice and see what's happening. Absolutely. Of course, if we're going out in the evening before full dark, you'll see Venus gracing our skies. And over the next few weeks, Venus uh, is great. It's great it's elongation from the sun. For us in Australia, that's not too big a deal because... Uh, because of the angle of the ecliptic uh, that doesn't result in a very big rise in things of the horizon. Nonetheless, um, for southern hemisphere viewers, we're able to see Venus uh, to past 60 minutes past sunset. Um, it's a, you'll still see it uh, uh, at full dark, but it'll be very low of the horizon. But we'll be approaching greatest brilliance uh, shortly, so it's well worth watching. It's not in an interesting part of the sky at the moment, but that will change in the coming weeks. So it's a, a good idea to just keep an eye on Venus, our a bright and brilliant companion. Uh, if you've got a small telescope, you can see the Thetis, you know, again, that uh, Venus is now a different gibbous shape and will be approaching half-moon shape very shortly. So again, something to keep uh, uh, an eye on. Most of the planetary action is still in the morning. Yep. So if you, head, if you head out into the morning skies... And I'll start looking around about an hour before sunrise, uh, you'll see this beautiful lineup of Mars, Jupiter and Saturn. On the 21st, Saturn will be um, uh, very close to the crescent moon, again, it's called, uh, beautiful in the morning. And again, you'll have the of Mars, Jupiter and Saturn all lined up with the crescent moon uh, joining them so that that overall site will be beautiful. Sadly, Saturn isn't as close as Jupiter, so you won't be able to do any interesting telescopic observations, but it will look very nice in binoculars and very nice with your unaided eye. If we can return to Mars at the moment, uh, this week we've we'll been watching Mars getting closer and closer to the, uh, the ship's Nebula, and as the week starts, a week starts out from our broadcast, we'll be able to see that Mars will have between the triple and Lagoon nebulas. But by the 21st, it's still within the binocular distance of the Tripod nebula and will look very beautiful indeed.
0: Fantastic. Uh,
1: it gets better if you uh, continue watching Mars uh, pull away from the pair. And you can see that if you've got a good dark sky you'll be able to see this with your eye. by. Uh, it's a bit harder to see under other suburban up Locations in the unable eye, but with the binoculars, be able to see it perfectly well. And uh, if you watch it pull away from the, the, the nebula, you'll see it approach the uh, uh, bright globular cluster uh, M22, and I'll be closest on the 29. And that will be an excellent sight in binoculars. Uh, M22 isn't astoundingly bright. It's magnitude is five, so it's not like beautiful, globular be clusters, uh, around the place of and, uh, so on. But still, it's, it's reasonably bright. It should be, uh, easily visible at the dark sky location and easily visible in binoculars. So you'll see Mars and N22 pair up. So 29th of February, they're at their closest. But if you continue on, it'll, uh, pull away, uh, fairly Fairly rapidly uh, into, into March, but it's still worthwhile watching in binoculars uh, for the next few days after that, and it will be a very beautiful sight.
0: So no sleepings, Ian. Get
1: out no there night. in
0: the morning. No,
1: no, no sleeping, I'm afraid it's a, it's a bit sad, but it's well worth it. But you'll also you may, may also notice that while Mars has been um, moving through the clusters, it's also coming close to Jupiter. Mars and Jupiter will be at their closest uh, later on, and I'll talk about this in more detail in the next podcast. Once the Moon passes away from Mars, Jupiter and Saturn, it will reappear again in the evening twilight, and Venus and the crescent moon will be close together on the 27th. You should be able to see the Earth shine begin to uh, grace the space, and the view of Venus, the crescent moon, and the Earth shine should be fantastic. There's an opportunity to see Venus' in daylight. Now, again, uh, you have to be very careful when you're doing this. Uh, Venus is uh, relatively close to the sun. It's, it's actually over 40 degrees away from the sun because of the angle. It's not very high above the horizon when the sun sets. But if uh, towards, the, towards sunset or early uh, afternoon, you find something, Big and opaque to block the sun with, and then locate the moon, you should be able to see Venus sitting quite next to the moon. It might take a couple of seconds for your eyes to pop in, but once you see Venus and uh, see the moon and uh, look to Venus uh, near the moon, then uh, it's really quite obvious.
0: Fantastic, Ian. Well, thank you very much once again, Ian Astroblog Musgrave.
1: Thank you very much, Brendan, and uh, it's a pleasure to be on and help people guide uh, themselves through our wonderful skies.
0: Okay, good night, mate.
1: Good night, mate. We'll catch you later.
0: Here is the Astrophys News, or FRB News, for the first time... Astronomers from CHIME have found a fast radio burst, an FRB, that repeats on a regular cycle. CHIME is the Canadian Hydrogen Intensity Mapping Experiment Collaboration. Every 16.35 days, the FRB signal, named FRB 180916J0158 plus 65, what a great name, repeats in a predictable pattern. Every four days it will spit out a burst or two every hour. Then it falls silent for 12 days, then the whole thing repeats. FRB dot J o 158 65 is one of a handful of FRBs that have been traced back to a galaxy. It's on the outskirts of a spiral galaxy 500 million light-years away in a star-forming region. Now, if you go to frbtheorycat.org, you'll see an extensive list of over 50 current theories detailing possible FRB mechanisms. Given that repeaters are now being found, like this 16-day repeater, one theorist has suggested that all FRBs are repeaters, but they glitch at different magnitudes. So we mainly see only the brightest bursts. With Chime, Molonglo, the MWA, Meerkat and ASCAP all ramping up their sensitivities, we may see more repeaters in the near future and the question of whether there are two FRB populations which are either cataclysmic, like neutron stars merging with white dwarfs, or non-cataclysmic, like pulsar or magnetar glitches, the origins will be put to rest, and theoreticians can come up with predictable and testable hypotheses. <laughs> Next. Since SETI has become mainstream, and some will say it always was, with the VLA and Parkes joining in on the search, a couple of new updates are worth mentioning. First, interstellar comet Borisov has been interrogated extensively and no techno signatures have been found. Sad. For those who want to join in from home and donate some spare CPU cycles on your home computer, UC Berkeley has been running a data search called SETI at Home for many years now. It's a great citizen science project anyone can contribute to. Just Google SETI at Home. That's SETI, S-E-T-I, the at symbol and the word home. Finally, on the same theme. Two days ago, Breakthrough Listen released two petabytes of data from a SETI survey of the Milky Way. The data looks at nearby stars that could see Earth transiting the Sun. And the project is inviting the public to search the data for signals from intelligent civilizations. About half of the data comes via the Parkes radio telescope in New South Wales, Australia, which because of its location in the Southern Hemisphere is perfectly situated and instrumental to scan the entire galactic disk and the galactic center. The telescope is part of the Australian Telescope National Facility, owned and managed by the country's National Science Agency, CSIRO. The remainder of the data was recorded by the Green Bank Observatory in West Virginia, the world's largest steerable radio dish, and an optical telescope called the Automated Planet Finder, built and operated by UC Berkeley and located at the Lick Observatory outside San Jose in California. So you can look up that if you want to contribute. Just Google Breakthrough Listen Releases 2 petabytes of data and you'll find everything you need to know. We'll see you in two weeks.